0: Everybody and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your ev- released every now and then podcast. Can't say weekly anymore because it's not. Um, your podcast for feel good nonsense. Uh, let's catch up on what's been going on in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, hi everybody. I know it's been a minute, missed a couple of weeks. Um, but basically, this podcast is all of the segments that I've been building the last couple of weeks um, till the point where it equaled an episode. Actually, it's. kind of a a longer episode because I barely had a lot to talk about. Um, And speaking of a lot to talk about, I'm going to start with a a pretty significant change here at the top of the episode. Um, But it's not about the podcast. It's about the audiobooks. And that change is that I and for the foreseeable future, um, I will no longer be doing daily chapters for the audiobooks. Um, Essentially what was happening, and I've experienced this before, Um, with the YouTube videos, the, the requirements that I had set for myself in terms of like daily chapters was essentially causing it so that I would just record a chapter for the sake of having a chapter and I would throw it up there whether or not I thought it was actually like of good quality. Um, the beauty of the audiobooks is that even when I'm like not on my game, there's still the book to listen to. Um, so that's a nice fallback, but it's like, you know, it's, it's a hobby for me. It's, it's something I do for fun. Uh, none of this, the pod, not the podcast, not the audiobooks, are a source of monetary income for me. I literally do it because I like doing it. That's it. So my new plan is essentially when I'm done reading the book, I'm just going to throw the entire thing up on the website at once. Um, so good news is, is that when a new book comes out, there's the whole thing. You don't have to wait like a month for the book to be finished. Bad news is uh, is that I cannot tell you when the next book is going to come out because the whole point of this is that I read at, like, my pace when I have time and when I feel like it. So they'll come out fairly intermittently. I'm not even going to set a goal for myself um, because that defeats the entire purpose of doing this at my leisure and when I have the energy for it. Um, what I will say is that I will continue doing audiobooks like, I'll drop the podcast sooner than I drop the audiobooks, because the audiobooks are just a fucking blast, and I love doing them. Um, and this change is just to ensure that I keep that love for as long as humanly possible. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's what's going on. Um, the next book I'm working on, or, well, I mean, the beauty of this is that I think I will be working on multiple books simultaneously. Um, just as, like, the feeling strikes me, and whichever one finishes next, like, that's the next one that'll go up. Um... Because that's just kind of kind of where I'm at. So yeah, that's a that's a new change, um, and I'm already a lot more relaxed um, in terms of my my hobbies than I was before. So it's no longer going to be a a huge source of stress, and I think this will be beneficial for for all of us because I I would figure that it'd be annoying if you were like waiting for the next chapter, like the book I'm reading right now. This next chapter is a page and a half long and like if that was the only thing that i uploaded new that day it's like a three minute chapter that's not that's not very exciting but want not it be cool where it's just like every now and then bam whole new book here's 20 hours of content enjoy um i think that'll be i think that'll be better um feel free to email me like i'm making this decision for my own sanity but like if if people enjoy the daily chapters um we can you know just let me know i going upcast gmail.com tell me tell me your feelings Um, about how you like getting content. Um, Also, you can always suggest books and things for me to read. Um, Or, I haven't talked about this in a while, if there's a particular book you would really like me to read, um, just message me and I also do audiobooks by commission. Um, My my rates are essentially... um, I'll just let you know in case you're you're thinking about it. Um, $15 an hour of reading... Plus the cost of me getting the book if I don't already have it. That's essentially my my deal for, for reading books. It seems a little steep, but it's a lot of work that goes into reading, you know, these audiobooks. Um, and it takes a while. So I just want to make sure that everybody's coming up, coming up you know, on the, on the good side. Of course, there's a cap. Um, like, if you wanted me to do... I don't know why you would request this, because I'm already reading Lord of the Rings. But if you wanted me to do a custom audiobook reading Lord of the Rings... Um, I won't, like, there's a a ceiling. I will only charge you so many dollars for an audiobook. I don't know what that ceiling is yet, because I haven't found it, but, like, if I were to charge you per hour for reading Lord of the Rings, it'd be like a $4,000 audiobook, and ain't no one gonna pay for that. So, that's just kind of where I'm at. Anyway, that's enough of me talking about the audiobook stuff. Yeah, again, if you have any thoughts or feelings, or leave a comment, you know, you can comment at goingcast.com. Under this exact episode, you can leave comments. Um, I will read those, too about this I know it's a pretty big change because um, I've been doing daily chapters for a very like couple of years now um originally it was three chapters a week then it was daily chapters and now it's when they're done so it's pretty it's pretty open-ended but I think it'll be great for great for my peace of mind and sanity so I hope you all can understand that and let's get into the podcast So I just re-watched Deadpool 1 and 2. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I guess they were on Hulu when I was bored. And, um, God, it's not like I don't have another fucking million and a half things to watch. Uh, but I don't. So <laughs> I decided to rewatch Deadpool 1 and 2. Um, first off, I prefer the second one. In case you were wondering. I think they're both pretty good. Um, in, in their own way. I think they linger a little too long on some jokes. Um, they have a little bit of that Family Guy syndrome, where it'll it'll just it'll just hang out just a little too long. But that's just me being kind of nitpicky. They are fun movies. Second one's definitely more fun. First one's more depressing than anything. Um, even though the second one, I feel like has a better. Like emotional heart to it, um, with the like the message of family and stuff like that. Um, they both are good in terms of being comedy movies and good at being like superhero movies or at least comic book movies because he's not really a superhero. Um, the the meta jokes and the fourth wall breaking and all of that stuff are fantastic the first time, or if you haven't seen it in a really long time. Um I still laughed at a couple of things. Um uh, but what I really want to talk about, I mean, if I hold on, before I get into what I really want to talk about. Um uh Deadpool 1 is probably like a fucking 6 out of 10. Deadpool 2 is probably a 8. I was gonna give it a 7, but I really love Juggernaut. Juggernaut is like one of my OG favorite Marvel characters um, like before all of this before the MCU before Marvel really was like popular again I remember a GameCube game called like X-Men Next Dimension which was a a, a fucking uh, fighting game with the X-Men characters and Juggernaut was in there and he was just this big fucking behemoth uh, and is just a fucking um weird personal side story for me I always loved the big fucking romper stomp brawlers of superhero characters the thing, the Hulk, Juggernaut, Beast like, that was, those Those were my old school favorites um, not for, I guess I've never really pondered as to why I guess because I want to be big and strong one day I think that's probably why and I'll never be as big as strong as them but I can sure try and I love Juggernaut, and I, I feel like this movie finally did him justice in terms of his physicality and his power set and attitude and all that stuff. The last stand Juggernaut is, is a fucking joke. Um, that's not my Juggernaut. Hashtag not my Juggernaut. But the thing I want to talk about um, is the ending of Deadpool 2, where Deadpool fixes the time machine and brings his his lady back from the dead and basically undoes all of the stuff that went wrong in Deadpool 2 and you know I'm pondering that. I'm pondering that because on one hand you could be like you know it's Deadpool fourth wall breaking meta humor joking Deadpool. That kind of shenaniganery makes sense for that character. But on the other hand, it kind of destroys the movie. And and here's why. Because it, well, I mean, it undoes Vanessa's sacrifice. It's not really a sacrifice. Vanessa dies pretty pointlessly, but it's the main drive of the movie. And I feel like Wayne. Wayne? Wade um kind of grows as an individual because of that suffering uh like most heroes do like could you imagine what would happen if uncle ben didn't die for peter or if bruce wayne's parents didn't die for batman i'm not saying it's equivalent but it's like that's the drive for, for any other superhero, you know, you do right because this is what your your lost loved ones would have wanted from you, is to do right. And while I, Deadpool isn't a hero, I mean, if we're just going to wipe it all away with fucking time travel, then what is the point of anything? Like, this. see, it's, it's one thing to always talk about, like, going back in time and fixing everything, but then it's another thing to see it before you. And for some reason, it's so, like, egregious. To, to me because it's like it was done in the credits you know if you don't hang around to watch the end of that fucking movie you don't see that and conceivably at the start of the third Deadpool movie like Vanessa will be alive and well and you know there are going to be some people out there who went well wait now hold on a second she died no she didn't fuck you he went back in time and fixed it it's just I don't know I don't think I like it to be honest I like a happy ending as much as anybody, but for some reason that's like a step too far. You know what I mean? It's always, the the thing with time travel is that it's brought up as like, boy, I wish I could X, Y, and Z, but nobody ever really can X, Y, and Z. It's just the hope. And then the response to that is, well, you fucking can't. All you have to do is, is learn to live with it and move on. And uh, it's just, he didn't learn to live with it and moved on. He, he fixed a time machine and went back in time and saved his loved one. Would others do the exact same thing in his shoes? Yeah, probably, but I wouldn't want to watch that fucking movie. Cause I'd be like, well, what's the point? It's, you didn't learn anything. Sure. He still went through the suffering, but I mean, she's alive again. So you just kind of toss your hands up and go, well, that was just a trial of frustrations. I like the movie a lot. Don't get me wrong. It would have been a 7 out of 10 if we're ju- fucking Juggernaut, wasn't it? Um, but he gets a whole bonus point all to me himself. A big sexy man. So yeah. I don't know. I didn't really think about this at the time of seeing this movie. But now that it's been enough time and I've kind of let it re-solidify into my being that it's just kind of like, Oh yeah! Yeah, I don't know how to feel about that. That's a weird one. That's a weird one. Leave a comment in this web zone. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So, locally here in Seattle, there is a... Or there was a arena known as Key Arena. Which I think is named for a bank. I think it's Key Bank. I don't fucking... I don't fucking know. Um, anyway, long time ago, I used to go to shows at Key Arena. One of many venues. Back in my clubbing days... And it was an okay venue. Um, it was large, it was fine, the acoustics in that building were never great. Um, and then for a long time I just kind of avoided it for concerts. They'd be like, you wanna go see Journey at Key Arena? And I'd be like, nah, I've seen them twice. Um, at better venues. And then the folks behind that particular arena decided to give it a fresh coat of paint. And now it's called Climate Pledge Arena. Um, and I presume, I've not confirmed this, but I presume it was rebuilt with, like, environmentally sustainable items, and it's probably run on green energy, and X, Y, and Z, and all this other stuff. And I had the opportunity to go see Volbeat and Ghost at the brand new Climate Pledge Arena uh, to celebrate my brother's 30th birthday. And... I wanted to talk a little bit about the improvements to the arena itself and then also how the show was. So, getting into Climate Pledge was easy peasy. Like, we barely stood in line. They checked your vaccine records. They walk you through the metal detectors. And the first thing I noticed walking into Climate Pledge was that it smelled really nice. Like, like the whole air smelled clean um, and fresh. Like, they had air scent and crap or just... Massive air filters to really fucking crisp that place up because it smelled awesome. Um, there were these massive high-definition screens everywhere showing, like, nature footage and trees and waterfalls and beautiful moss-covered rocks, basically the Pacific Northwest in all of its glory. Um, several dozen food and drink items or restaurants just all throughout this place. Um... It was it was it was very cool and um oh gosh uh, i gotta tell you this story so we were standing in line for merch um which i actually didn't end up getting anything because uh i'm trying to save money for the first time and who fucking knows how long you know you want you want your your bank account to be a certain number right so i'm just trying to be a little bit more fiscally responsible um until i it's at that number and then i'm going to blow it all on candy or something like that. Anyway, um, we're standing in line for the merch booth and I feel a tab on my shoulder. And I turn around and there is an individual there and they go, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, hey, good to see you and all that stuff. And they introduce me to their uh, to their partner and we shake hands and we have a great little chat. And then they get in line for the merch booth and they're like, enjoy the show. And I'm like, great, yeah, thanks. Talk to you later. And they walk away and I turn around to my, uh, my family and I go, I have no idea who that was. And, it was very funny. But, it was, you know, it was... See, the problem was, I don't have a great memory for most things. So, there was a better than decent chance I do know who this person was. I've just forgotten. So, that's my mentality for pretty much all of life because I might just not remember. And so my approach is to just go with it because I might know who they are or I might not. Either way, it's polite to be polite. So I just went with it. Um, and I've thought about it since then. I'm still not sure I know that person. So I think it was just one of those, it was polite to be polite situations. Um, so yeah but that was fun anyway we're wandering around looking for our seats and we had excellent seats you know it's a birthday it's a big birthday he turned 30 and then you know i wanted to i wanted to do it up right. and so i got us in sections and or seats in section 1a doesn't get nicer um in the front fucking row right on the aisle like fucking prime seats and we're wandering around looking for him and Eventually I had to give up and ask one of the like uh, workers there and be like, hey, where are these uh where are these seats at? And they're like, Oh, you're in the Symmetra Club. And we actually walked by the Symmetra Club Um and went, wow, that place looks nice. Our t- our seats aren't in there. We're just gonna keep we're just gonna keep going. Um and it was after he said that I was like, Oh, that's why they're called club seats. Yeah. Cause they're in the club. So we go into the club which you have to boop your ticket again in order to get access to the club. So, you know, exclusive for, like, 200 people. And inside was pretty nice. Um, It had its own pizza restaurant. It had its own craft beer section. It had two cocktail bars, several TVs, a lot of open space, as well as, like, decent, like, balcony views of the arena itself. If you, for some reason, didn't want to sit in your seat, you could just stand up there with your drink and watch the show um which i actually kind of love that mentality because it's like let's have a conversation whilst this amazing concert is happening before us you know um it's multitasking do business dinners and stuff like that be like yeah let's go let's go to the symmetric club or like go to a fucking hockey game and you have the symmetric club that'd be fucking legit anyway uh quick side note if you go to this arena climate pledge arena Bring your, your, your biggest, fattest wallet, because a single beer in this location was $16. I don't care who you are. That's expensive. Full stop. A $16 beer. Not a, it's not giant. It's a normal beer. Comes in a can. Can or in a glass if you're getting one of one of those crap $16 holy crap I mean I know it's a new arena and you got to pay those bills somehow but do you know how much beer I could go get for $16 at the very least six beers like I could get a six pack for much less than $16 decent beer probably a little bit less than $16 like my favorite beer, if I wanted to go get a six pack of like maybe Aslan or something, I think that's like a ten dollar six pack. Like sixteen dollars for one beer—that's steep, even for me. And so I spent fifty dollars on whiskey instead. No, <laughs> uh, but the concert itself was was awesome. Uh, the acoustics in this place have been very much improved. I'm not sure how they did that, but they did that probably through science and. Big pieces of fabric. Anyway, uh, Volbeat put on a wonderful show. Um, I've been a fan of Volbeat since college and before then. Um, Heaven Nor Hell, or what was there, What is that album called? Is it called Heaven Nor Hell? Um, I think it has like a big, long, actual, dumb... Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I want to get it right because that album in particular was the album I played on like my um, radio show in college. Volbeat... uh beyond hell above heaven that i physically had that album and i would play that shit quite a bit on my radio show it was good stuff but yeah they had an excellent show with a big multimedia screen and lots of you know lights and lasers and stuff like that that was pretty good Um, and then ghost came on and they did a wonderful job ghost is very much a spectacle band huge band like there were, I don't know, a little less than ten people on stage, um, which is still significant. Like two keyboardists, two background singers, the drummer, two guitarists, the bassist, and then the singer. That's nine. That's nine people. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot. Um, but yeah, they did a, they did a wonderful job with their spooky heavy metal slash Swedish pop feel. I saw somebody describe Ghost as like a blend between Black Sabbath and ABBA and I'm like that's pretty close you know um, their songs are all over the place in terms of style and genre and, and what not but they are they are a fun band it's almost like if the Beatles sung about Satan you know it's it's a very strange band but it's a very good band and I like them a lot and they're actually both of those bands are coming out with new albums or have recently come out with new albums um, I feel like Volbeat's in the latest album was not that long ago. I want to say like a couple of months, uh. But it was it was an awesome show, and the venue was fantastic. Um, I think seeing a, a hockey game or really any event in this arena I think would be worthwhile. The arena itself is very cool, if very expensive. Um, but what's great is that across the str- like the fucking lawn from this place there is a a building called the Armory, which is essentially a food court. Um, and if you show up early enough, you can get a, a wide selection of food and drinks at the armory for a much more reasonable price than what you'll get in climate pledge. Um, there is also a din tai Fung in climate pledge. so if that's what you're into, um, and that's very expensive already. so you're used to that with there, but I'm just you know, I'm just saying, you're in the you're in Seattle Center when you go to climate pledge so there are other options right in that fucking area for excellent sustenance for much less so that'd be my advice if you're going to do it because I think the inside prices are going to be a little pricey yes you're gonna you're gonna need to cough up some dough if you're going to pull that move good concert then let's move on to next thing in podcast all remember, if you've been listening to the podcast for more than a little while, that I did a 13-episode miniseries on me reviewing every uh, piece of animated content under the movie tab in Disney Plus at the time. Um, I just went back through, because I forgot to write down this fucking shit um, from before, but I just went back through, and there are what? Um, 21 new movies that have been added since I did this list. Um, but when I did this originally, I forgot to write it all down. Um, in terms of like my score and stuff, and so I've just done that. I went back and I re-listened to to everything, and I thought I would do a quick little greatest hits because it's fresh on my mind. Um, and uh, I want to do I want to do the top 10 movies, and then I will do the bottom fuck how many of these were zeros the bottom 19 movies (laughs) all right number 10 um well actually no they're not ranked they're all perfect movies so they're all equal in my eyes um as far as as far as i'm concerned i'm just going you know let's do it in order of release can i do that let's do this um i want it i want it sorted by both though i want it i want it no you're not gonna actually you know yeah we'll do it by release i can just scroll Um, so even though in the original review, I did not give Fantasia a number, I do consider it a 10 out of 10. It's not a movie. It's a, like a fucking experience, you know? Um, because there is no like narrative structure to it. So it's not a traditional film, but it's a really, really cool piece of art. The likes of which I've not seen replicated since 1940 when this movie when this experience first came out, even Fantasia 2000 only got like a six out of ten. Fantasia is in a league of its own. There's nothing else that I've ever seen quite like it. So that get that gets a ten. Two movies out of the 70s: 1973's Robin Hood and 1977's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh both got tens. I feel like Robin Hood is as classic, like a formulaic Disney movie as you're likely to find, but it also has the added benefit of having like a legitimate like healthy relationship between the lead and the romantic interest a villain who can be both like villainous and kind of childish at the same time a kick-ass soundtrack and it's just got that wonderful like disney animated charm many adventures of winnie the pooh that's primarily nostalgia goggles but i do still think it's an awesome movie um, and it is the greatest of any sort of anthology-based movie you're likely to find on Disney+, Plus, where it's a bunch of short stories all linked together. Winnie the Pooh does that format better than any other fucking cast of characters or intellectual property that Disney owns. 1994 is The Lion King, 10 out of 10. Obviously, that's my all-time favorite movie, and it always will be. Um, it, I can't say a bad thing about it. It is, it is truly perfect. 1996, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, I gave it a 10 at the time, and I'm sure if I watched it right now, I'd probably sit there and be like, yeah, it's a perfect movie. Um, if I were to rate it without seeing it after a couple of months, I'd probably drop that to a 9, but I gave it a 10 at the time, so I'm going to stick to my guns, um, on that one, and, and it maintains its 10, uh, power. 1999's Toy Story 2 gets a 10. It is the best of the Toy Story movies. Uh, feel free to fight me on that. I will. I will, I will whoop your ass on that. Toy Story 2 is the greatest. They're all Good. Don't get me wrong, but Toy Story 2 was the pinnacle for me. Um, and that's primarily because Jesse is such an interesting and uh, intriguing character. Uh, 2009's Up got a 10 out of 10. shouldn't have to explain myself on that one. Doug is hilarious. It's got a really, really good emotional core. And it's gorgeous to look at. 2010's Tangled got a 10 out of 10. If you wanted to watch a princess movie, Tangled is the best princess movie. Um and it's even it's better than Frozen hands down Tangled is is a superior film Uh, 2015's Inside Out there's nothing else on this list really quite like Inside Out and it deserves being a perfect movie simply because of how unique it is but then on top of that it is also just a perfect movie and it will make you feel and it'll make you think and that's awesome Coco 2017 I cannot watch this movie without it making me cry every time every single time doesn't matter remember me though I have to say goodbye remember me uh. all right the 19 worst movies on Disney plus so far I do plan on watching the 20 something new movies that were added to Disney plus behind me um, but that'll be that'll be done later that's probably a podcast episode in and of itself all right, in order of release, DuckTales, the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp, the first straight-to-DVD movie that Disney Studios ever made, um, and it's ass. It is true ass. What's really interesting is that it's the exact same plot as Aladdin, done two years before Aladdin came out. Interesting. Speaking of Aladdin, Aladdin, The Return of Jafar, was also unwatchable swill. Don't even remember anything about it, but I fucking hated it. Pretty much, if it has a zero, I could not physically finish it is that it's so bad and so unwatchable I could not finish it that's the catalyst for why these are zeros out of ten uh, the next zero out of ten movie would then be Beauty and the Beast Bell's Magical World complete trash as is Pocahontas 2 Journey to a New World utter trash speaking of sequels how about Little Mermaid 2 Return to the Sea these are all terrible movies Tarzan and Jane anthology movie complete trash hunchbacker notre dame 2 if i had to pick one of these movies to be like the ultimate example of what the fuckery it would be hunchbacker notre dame 2 probably the worst movie worst animated movie on disney plus as of recording this and i understand that there are 18 other films like yeah, it zero out of ten this is like negative zero and the only reason it's because for all of the faults of these other films except for maybe teacher's pet but so here's the statement about Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. It looks like shit. It is anim- it is the worst piece of animation on Disney Plus for- for this movie tabs. I don't like the animation of Treasure Planet 2, or not Treasure Planet, um, Teacher's Pet, but it's because of its style, not because it's animated poorly. Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 is just done badly. It's dingy, it's shittily done, like, on every level. It's just a bad-looking movie. And it's, like, the only one I would really say that about. So, all these other faults, the animation was not nearly as bad as it was for Hunchback. And Landis Milo's Return also got a 0 out of 10. It's an anthology movie, uh, and those tend to not be very good, by and large. Uh, I already spoke about Teacher's Pet, but it was the animation style. It's not animated badly, I just hate the style, and so I couldn't finish it. Three Musketeers, uh, it was the music. Uh, It was the adding lyrics to classical songs That really did it for me Because I thought that was incredibly lazy and shitty Kronk's New Groove Anthology movie not funny and Stitch 2 Stitch has a glitch Uh, Jumbo's an asshole And he didn't solve the problem When he could have the entire time Proud Family Movie Didn't like the animation style And it looked like shit So there you go Mars Needs Moms It's the animation again It really freaked me out And I thought that it was really bad And kind of uh, cheesy and corny And very very dated Phineas and Ferb Star Wars. By and large, I did not like the Phineas and Ferb movies. But then again, I didn't watch the show growing up. So I can understand that I would not be the target audience for such things. But I gave most of them pretty bad. However, that's the only one that got a 0 out of 10 that I couldn't finish it. Pirate Fairy. It's one of the Tinkerbell movies. It's the only one I couldn't finish. They're, by and large, pretty average. Um, And my recollection of The Legend of the Never Beast, which I need to rewatch for this fucking ranking, um, was that it was actually pretty good. But I'll let you guys know about that one. But Pirate Fairy, I couldn't finish Ice Age Collision Course and Ice Age The Great Excapade both got zeros out of 10. I do not like the Ice Age characters. And honestly, most of the new movies that were added to this tab in Disney Plus since I did my original review series are Ice Age movies. So at the very least, that'll that'll be done in like less than an hour because I don't think I'll be able to finish any of them. And finally, hey, look, Phineas and Ferb again. Phineas and Ferb, the movie Candace Against the Universe and the most... And like the highest amount of dramatic irony ever constructed the entire movie is about how candace never gets the limelight and the one time candace got the limelight it was bad so gee i wonder why candace never gets the limelight oh man so yeah now i've got this wonderful little fucking excel spreadsheet um of all the disney movies organized by date or organized by score or organized alphabetically it doesn't matter so if you're ever curious, like, hey, what do you think of Little, Little Mermaid? And I can look at you straight in the eye and be like, you mean 1998's The Little Mermaid? The shit got a four out of ten. It's terrible. But if you want to see a good Little Mermaid movie, that's what Little Mermaid Ariel's beginning is for, and that shit got like an eight out of ten. But only if you fast forward past the villain. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I just spent the last couple of hours doing. In that review, I watched 183 movies. Sorry, 182 movies. In that review. The average score for all of those fucking movies was a five and a half. That's bad. Out of like Disney's, by my rating scale, a five is a functional movie. It's technically acceptable, right? Like you don't do anything egregious, but you don't do anything amazing. So you're a truly average film. And if I were to look at the entire Disney catalog... It's right in the, it's a little above average. 5.5 is the average score for all of Disney. But I think that's simply because they just have done so much. I mean, you can't get away with doing this many movies and have it, you know, be always successful. It's just not going to happen. So, yes, I've got quite a few movies to watch. On this next list, I think we're going to get started on that. Because some of these are pretty short, so I should be able to crank through them. And some of them I just straight up don't remember. Um, so I need to give them another watch. And you know what? Hold on. There are two movies on here I gave scores to originally, but they're too recent. Actually, I did them uh, at other times. Encanto and um, Ryan the Last Dragon. I reviewed on other podcasts, but it's been too long since I've seen them, so I'm going to give them another chance, I think. I'm going to I'm going to rewatch both of those. So Encanto gets a rewatch and Ryan the Last Dragon, where the fuck are you? You stupid ass. Where's Ryan the Last Dragon? I see Dis- what? Where is it? It was recent. More recent than that? Did I not? Re- did I not give it a score? Oh, there it is. Yeah, okay. I didn't give it a score. Cool. Um, that is that is the way it should be. That is the way it should be. So that means I have, um, yeah, twenty one movies to review for this for this next list. Excellent. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So the other day I went and saw Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the musical, the Disney musical, uh, performed at the Fifth Avenue Theater here in Seattle, Washington. Um, and, uh, at the time of recording this, it's still doing showings, so. It's almost topical when I talk, when I talk about this. Anyway, um, first thing, diverse cast. It was awesome. Uh, they were, they were incredibly diverse. Belle was, uh, Belle was black, Maurice was black, um fucking gaston and beast were both people of color but i can't remember exactly what doesn't really matter uh the important thing is that it was incredibly diverse and i loved it for that number two the performances were really good singing wise excellent um singing wise excellent dancing was also out of this world there was some proper like old school dick van dyke kind of like slap dancing or danny Kaye from singing in the raid like physical prop dancing like it was It was all over, pretty excellent. Set design was a little simplistic, but they did a lot with what they had. So I thought that was good. The music was excellent. Um, Obviously, it's Beauty and the Beast, so it's a good story. Uh, I actually noticed stuff about Beauty and the Beast that I never connected the dots on before. Uh, Like, I always connected the dots with Beast and Gaston. You know, the man inside the monster and the monster inside the man. That kind of parallel. Uh, But for the first time, I actually connected that both Belle and Beast were outsiders in their collective societies. um, Because of who they were. Or what they looked like. Um, so I thought that was a nice parallel as well. Um, but what I really want to talk... It was excellent. Like, it's its my second favorite Disney musical performed live in front of me. Um, I've only ever seen three. And it loses to Lion King because that will always be the ultimate. Um, but it, I did enjoy this more than Hunchback and Render Um, But that was also an incredible theater experience. The thing I want to talk about is... The accent work in this, in this musical. Um... It's almost as if I was the dialect coach for this musical. The accents were either pretty good. Like I thought Lumiere did an excellent job. Their French accent was pretty spot on, especially to Lumiere's French accent. Um, But everybody else was either uh, pretty off yet fairly consistent or really off and really inconsistent. Like Mrs. Potts could not maintain a believable British accent to save their life it was it was bad um and it was unfortunate and so here's here's my advice if you can't do the voice don't because you're just going to like first of all you're doing a british accent and you're trying to sound like angela lansbury who has a very particular way of speaking angela lansbury is is a voice in and of itself it's not enough to do a British accent. You have to do an Angela Lansbury British accent, where basically every vowel is a. Um, but they weren't doing that. Their singing was acceptable. Um, but honestly, it was the it was the consistency of the voice, um, and that that will bother me more than anything else in somebody else's performance. It's okay for me because I'm not trying to be perfect. And I'm not trying to be like professional or respectable. You know? I my my stuff comes with jank established the second you turn on my my stuff, my audiobooks or my podcast. It has a level of shitty production that I strive for every day. You know, you get what you get. It's all honest and raw and unedited. That's what you fucking get with me. You know, one take, that's that's all you get. So if it's good, then it's gay. And if it isn't, well then fucking that just goes with the style. Um, and this is intentional. If I wanted my stuff to sound good, it would take me way longer. It'd be better, but it would take way longer. And I don't have time for that. So you get what you get. Um, so I can have inconsistent, terrible voices until the cows come home. But you're on stage and you're a professional. Should be better than this. I hold you to a higher standard because you make money doing what you do and I do not. That's the difference. I do my shit for free. So who gives a fuck? So. That being said, I still thought it was it was very very good, um, and I would recommend it uh, for the dancing alone. Like honestly, some of some of that the the spectacle. <coughs> as I joke on nothing, the spectacle of it was excellent. So I really would recommend that. Um, yeah, tell you what, let's uh, move on to the next thing in the podcast, which is pretty much going to be me talking about Legend of Arcana. <laughs> Episodes 4, 5, and 6 of The Legend of Vox Machina on Amazon Prime. Now watching on on Hulu. <laughs> um, are, are excellent. We are fucking waist deep in the Briarwood arc. And I was thinking about this whilst I was watching it. Um, like doing, you know, your standard like, here's what happens in episode 4 and this is what happens in episode 5 and 6. And I'm a little too lazy to do that right now. I'm not going to give you a plot breakdown. Um... I'm just going to say that it's very good. Um, it's like the first two episodes are a little tight, little short story. And it, it. if I was to describe it in terms of like rating, well, it's like the show got a lot darker with episode three and it maintains that level of darkness for episodes four, five and six. I mean, the Briarwood arc is very heavy and it's very gothic and morbid. Um, And it maintains that flavor in these three episodes. So the first two episodes are, like, right in the middle. You know, there's a couple of dark moments. um, But mostly, it's, like, kind of lighthearted fantasy crap. And then the Briarwoods hit. And then it just kind of drops into this, this like, really dark area. It's excellent. But it's really dark. um, And very heavy. So, if that's not your flavor, season one of Vox Machina probably won't be for you. Because I am pretty confident that it's gonna be the briarwoods until the end and then they're gonna skip right into the crumb of conclave arc with the dragons and that will probably be a bit more not lighthearted, but more like kind of sword and shield fantasy um that's my guess uh and what i do appreciate is that they are definitely laying down the groundwork for like the long haul I mean, we got references of the final boss of the first campaign in episode three of season one. So, they it really does seem like we're aiming for the whole kit and caboodle when it comes to campaign one. Um, And they're doing a great job of, like, summarizing a bunch of stuff up. And bringing in a lot of, like, the most iconic moments. Even moments that, like, didn't have a purpose in the show have been referenced. So... For me, the the moment that uh, stuck out the most that was in, like, an Easter egg was the banner in the uh, keep of... In Grayskull Keep, which is the name of the keep in the campaign. I don't know what they've called it in the show. Um, The House of Vox Machina. There is a a banner, like a tapestry, on the back that shows seven cows with a rock. Um, And that was one of the best moments of the first campaign was when Keyleth turned them all into flying cows. Um... It was it was excellent. So there's that bit, uh, and then um, the bit with the uh, the people hung from the sun tree was also excellent. I loved the the foreshadowing build up to that when they gave the little girl like the necklace, and I'm just like, wow, that's that's fucked. As soon as that happened, I I, I it clicked in my head what was coming. So I thought that was really good. I don't remember Cassandra's role in this arc to be perfectly honest with you i know what cassandra like kind of later becomes but i don't remember her so much here um and i'm a little surprised that we haven't seen anna ripley yet but she'll she'll make her presence known i'm sure no it's been it's been wonderful and one thing i'm learning from the show is unless they're a member of vox machina do not get attached to anybody not a soul because by and large they're gonna die that's like it, it happens all the time like here's a character and it's like oh wow they're voiced by who oh that's really neat oh they're dead all right well well i was short-lived but fun um yeah it's been it's been awesome and i like the uh pike solo adventure definitely harkens to when ashley johnson was like never around in campaign one because she was off on Filming Blind Spot, but we actually get to see her trying to connect with the Everlight and, and conquer her her stuff. Um my recollection was that Pike was pretty pivotal in the Briarwood fight, so I hope that uh she comes back to because they're gonna fucking need her. Um no, it's been it's been awesome. And I love how uh concise it is. Cause you gotta remember the Briarwood arc in terms of the campaign. Let's look it up. Let's look it up. Because the Briarwood arc for this show is probably going to be told in Season 1. Right? So, 12 episodes. Uh, Briarwood arc Season 1. Critical role. The Briarwood arc. It was 15 episodes of Season 1. Episode 24 to 38. Um, And then it's followed by the Chroma Conclave. Um arc, uh, 39 to 84. So, the Chroma Conclave arc is even longer, but 15 episodes, multiply that by like, minimum 3 hours an episode, brings you up to fucking, what is that, 45? No. Yeah, 45 hours. Right? Right? 15 times 3? Yeah, 45 hours. Of content being summarized into um... I mean, not even 12 episodes, right? The first two episodes had nothing to do with it, so... 10 times, let's say, 25 minutes an episode? 12 by sixty, four hours. So... 45 hours of content being summarized in charitably 4 hours. We don't even know if the remainder of the season deals with this stuff, but it's like... They they did a wonderful job of distilling this... You know... A D&D campaign... Into one fucking season of a show. must D campaigns would be lucky to get through 15 sessions. Let alone 15 3 plus hour sessions. Let alone told on a weekly basis. Like it's it's unreal. So, no, I think it's a I think it's really really well done and I am loving it. And I think the Briarwood arc is a really great place to begin the show. There were two arcs before it. There was the Craghammer story arc um which was like the Underdark and there's a Beholder and all that stuff, and then there's Vasselheim when they're doing the Slayers take stuff, and those are great. I like those a lot. But Briarwood, Chroma Conclave, uh, I guess Taryon Darrington gets an arc, and then of course the Cult of Vecna. Those are the four. Um, I'd be willing to bet that we're probably gonna play out three of those. I think it's gonna be Briarwood, Chroma Conclave, Cult of Vecna. Um, but I would love for Taryon to actually be in the show i think that'd be a really good season of tv if they did the tearing arc. um but what do i know i also hope they do like you can see right they did a lot of one shots and there's a lot of great like single episodes that would make awesome like specials like when uh vex and percy get married that would make an excellent special um i hope there's like a movie length like four episode story for like the final battle with Vecna and all of that stuff. Because there's a lot of content that happens in that show. Um, or in that in that episode. So yeah, I think it's... I think they're doing a great job. And they also uh, do not hold back on the violence. Um, moderate moments of nudity and sex. Like nothing, nothing too egregious. Just it's there, but it's not like at the forefront. It's predominantly gore and violence. And with a little bit of language, but... In terms of like seeing a character just do really dark things and being super vengeful, Percy is so fucking good in this show. Like I liked Percy in campaign 1, but I love Percy in the show. It's 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 it's, it's the same character but it's just told so fucking well. Not that they did a bad job telling it the first time, but they're they've perfected it this time. So it's just it's all good. It's not that these episodes were better. It's not that I had a favorite. It's just all amazing. And um, I am very, very, very pleased with how this show has gone. Um, and I want more of it. And I will probably be buying the season one DVD box set when it comes out. God, I hope they put it on DVD. Legend of Vox Machina DVD release date. Please tell me it's coming out on DVD. I want on DVD. I want to own this. I want to own it. Give it to me. Oh, what does the Wikipedia article say? Um, Yeah, the episodes. Kickstarter production, broadcast, pre-release, critical response. It's still a very, very well-reviewed show. No, no, they're not. No, I hope it comes out in DVD. We'll find out. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Next three episodes of the Legend of Vox Machina have come out: episodes seven, eight, and nine. There's only three episodes left in season one, and I'm a little, I'm a little sad um, that it's almost over, um, and I. Hope that the last three episodes maintain the level of quality we've seen thus far. I have no reason to suspect that they will not. My current running theory is that the next three episodes are... I'm torn because I think there's quite a bit left to happen before this really wraps up. And so my guess is that either the 12th episode is longer than everything that's preceded it. Or the next three episodes are quote-unquote one episode. And they just do like a fucking 90-minute like kind of movie finale sort of thing. Uh, we'll see. Honestly, pacing is not this show's weak point. Um, I don't I don't think that it has been poorly paced at all, and I think it's done a tremendous job of synthesizing, what did I say last time, like 30 fucking hours of... Um, more than that. 30 episodes of content into like, you know, 12, 12 episodes. Anyway, um, this is like... When the show starts kind of climbing out of the darkness, as far as I'm concerned, um, it's a lot more what I would uh, cl- like associate with DD than some of the stuff that's preceded it. Um, in terms of how some of my games have gone personally, I can see DD elements in everything that the show does. Um, but in terms of the like the Scanbo episode, um, where Scanlan goes to that dude's house and just fucking wreck shop, and I mean, that's the moment of legend. If you haven't seen the clip of that, um, I would really recommend it. Like, the original uh, live stream, when that exact instance happens, like, everybody's losing their fucking minds laughing. It's excellent. Um, it makes for some some awesome D&D stuff. And I thought that episode was really good. Um, I, I love the decision-making process of that. I thought that was very fitting for, like, a D&D thing. Um, no Mercy Percy is Continuously phenomenal um, And honestly The ki- they, the show does a pretty good job Of balancing the threat level With the characters um, So they don't seem like overpowered god beings um, And then at other times They're overpowered god beings And I kind of love that as well um, Their power level fluctuates With the storytelling But because it's a D&D show It works because your power level will fluctuate based on the luck of the dice right you are at all times at the whim of dice with dungeons and dragons and regardless of your level and your spells and your abilities and your hit points and your ac and all that shit if you roll a one you're fucked um and that's the beauty of the game that the game will self-correct and balance your ass out simply because of stuff like that you have modifiers but you know you there's always the chance that you fail Um, Just as there's always the chance that you succeed. And I think that fits really nicely with this story that they're weaving before our eyes. Um, We got a little bit of backstory on the Briarwoods, which I appreciated. Um, Helps to make sense of those characters. Maybe not as much as I would have liked to see just in general. Um, They're being fairly ambiguous about their plans. Which is fair, because to the best of my knowledge, um, the exact full scope of what they're planning um, doesn't really get addressed until much later on um, in Season 1 of Critical Role. So we'll see how that goes. Cassandra DiRolo, um is fantastic. Um, I loved the Professor Anders fight. I thought that was really good. Um, I loved Pike uh, dealing with the Everlight and Astral projecting to be a part of this fight. Um, not having her around with the the undead situation over Whitestone was pretty brutal for that whole encounter. Um, and so having her kind of guest spot in, because that's what she would do, right? She would, like, livestream from New York to be in certain episodes. And so they would just astral protect her ass into the actual show. Um, and it is very befitting of, of Pike's character. And I'm glad they didn't change the story to have Pike there the whole time. Because, you know, this is... It, it's more truthful to the original tale. And I thought what they came up with for what Pike was off doing made a lot of sense for that character. And I loved it because it just adds greater depth to them. Um, Vax's confession of love to Keyleth. Now I don't remember if that actually happened at this moment, um, to be perfectly honest. So I'm not sure if they're, if they're being truthful to the original show or what. Either way, from the show's perspective, it's a little early and it's a little rushed. And this is probably one of the more pronounced moments of if you didn't watch the original live stream or you don't know that at that point in their game, those characters had been playing together for over, what, three years? How long How long was pre-stream? Pre-stream was a significant amount of time. How long were they playing Critical Role before the stream? Um, let's see, two years um, before they started streaming it live. So they had been together for a long time playing that game, which is enough time for Vax to have developed feelings for Keyleth. But we don't know that if you only know the show, it just feels a little soon. Like, sure. love. I mean, you know, crazier things have happened, but Kela's response to that seemed very appropriate. Um, also, this batch of episodes uh, were the first times I audibly laughed out loud. Don't get me wrong, I think the show is very funny. Um, but I've seen this humor for years now, and I'm kind of conditioned to to their funny. Um, but there were definitely a couple of lines that got me, um, and a couple of, of, moments that got me in these recent episodes. Um, like, uh, Grog chopping that giant, like, all the way in half, his, his little, like, motherfucking god dude, just as he's doing that was really good. Scanlan being like, of course there's a horde of zombies, because fuck me, right? And that was, that was also good. Um, Scanlan's song about Pike Trickfoot is also the first Scanlan song that I think I'll unironically listen to on its own. The score of this show has been phenomenal and I as a DM absolutely adore this shit because I've just slapped it all into like my D&D playlists like all of it. It's like every piece of instrumentation from the show has ended up on my D&D playlists because how could it not? It's like fucking perfectly designed. You got a tavern song? Excellent. Put that shit on loop. Just like here we go. Um and it's it's been it's been wonderful for that The background art continuously blows me away some of those wide establishing shots of locations i think are are phenomenal um and i've been actively uh telling folks like that i know don't appreciate some like darker media to avoid this show because it's a very heavy beginning but these last three episodes finally start crawling out of that like everything sucks and everybody's dying area and getting more and more into like kind of the light that I would associate with critical role, you know, making finding the comedy in in terrifying scenarios and that's the wonderful balance of dungeons and dragons. Um and it finally started happening for me around around these episodes. Um and the statement I've made several times, if they are not a member of Vox Machina, do not get attached to them, they will die maintains to be true. Um, as virtually every other character that has had a speaking line that was not a member of Vox Machina has died um which after a while it stops having as much of an impact um but i love it because like the stakes seem real this like just with the balancing like the luck of the dice right sometimes the characters win and sometimes they lose and the char- the Vox Machina crew do get fucked up Constantly, and I think that's the that's the mark of a good encounter balance. The trick with I think every well not every D and D fight, but every if you want stakes in a D and D fight, you have to almost kill the party like every fucking time, and that's that's how you get them. By barely surviving is I think a great place to be. If the if players are too strong, then it's not really much of a challenge, and if the enemies are too strong, then your players run, which also hopefully helps. Um, raise those stakes. I love, I love fights where they're so hopelessly outmatched that they just cannot win and they know to bail. Um, otherwise they die and then you have to start a new campaign. Um, and no, I thought these episodes were, were excellent. Um, they do a good job of making you hate villains. They do a great job of helping you root for the, the heroes. Um... Now I'm just thinking, like, over it in my head. Keyleth is probably still, like, my number one. Every character, except for... I guess Pike. Uh, not Pike. Sorry, Grog. Has, like, strong character development. But Grog doesn't really need it, because Grog is a fairly... Um, straightforward character that you understand what they're about... Within, like, five minutes of Grog footage. Um, one thing that I don't quite get... And I don't recall this from the show either. I recall Vex, Vex and Keyleth getting along tremendously. And so Vex's like dislike of Keyleth to me seems out of character, but it could be that I just don't remember. I do remember people fucking hating Keyleth in the live stream, which was so unfair. Like Marisha got a raw fucking deal in season one. Most people did not like her or her character, and I think that's tremendously unfair. And even to this day, like I've got people who, who talk to me about the show that go like, "Man, I just do not like Marisha," and I don't, I don't understand that at all. There's not a character or an uh, an actor on Critical Role that I dislike anymore, and I think they're they're all phenomenal. So. It, it makes me sad that you know there are there's that level of like dislike for for uh, an actor or an actor's character or anything like that. But to each their own, you know. If some people just don't like Keyleth, then they don't like Keyleth. But I don't think you should really go after the fucking actor for for that. But that could just be me. And you'll notice that I said anymore. This show's ability to destroy Tiberius and remove him from the canon is simply delicious. And, um, I think it is, it is phenomenal. Um, I, it's, it's so fucking Stuart Sutcliffe or Pete Best. Um, because if you go back, I don't recommend this, but if you go back to watch Critical Roll Season 1 live on the VODs, which I believe are still on YouTube, um, if you try to watch those from the very beginning, you'll encounter an individual by the name of Orion Akeba who was the forgotten eighth member of this this campaign, um, who played Tiberius Stormwind. And Tiberius is around until pretty much right before the party arrives at Whitestone for the Briarwood arc, at which point um, he left the show. Whether he was kicked out, whether he left of his own accord, I don't exactly know. Um, all I do know is that I believe, like, He, he let, he, he disappears essentially, um, with nary a word. I think Matt says that he was sick. Um, and so he wasn't going to be there that week. And then he just never showed up, um, again, he was just gone. Uh, let's see if I can find, uh, what happened. Um, do, 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 do. On October 28th, 2015, at 6.40 Pacific Standard Time, it was announced live on the Geek and Sundry Twitch channel that due to a mutual parting of ways, Orion would no longer appear on Critical Role. Orion later provided his perspective in a video titled Chalk Talk, Why I Left Critical Role, but the video was eventually removed or made private. Um, he explained in greater detail what had been going on during a Twitch stream on his own channel, cleaning his uh, struggles with illness and substance abuse. In- interesting. Um... Well, I hope do, 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 that he's doing fine on that. I do also know that he once did a charity live stream on Twitch and then proceeded to spend that money on a PlayStation 4 rather than giving it to charity. So, ups and downs. Either way, I appreciate his um, non inclusion in the show, as his presence at the table is one of the primary reasons why I inform people that if you do try to watch the original live streams to start after he leaves, because he, he actively brings the show down. Um, and the, the, like the next time (sighs) watching the characters interact together, Walt's he's there, and then watching them interact together after he has left, it's like night and day. They seem so much more free and like alive. Um, not to mention his awkward hitting on Mar- Marisha Walsh. She was actively dating Matt at the time. It's not cool. So, yeah. It's it's awesome. And to wrap up this, this podcast, um, I was doing this weird thing where I was looking at eBay um, because over the years, there has been an absolute metric fuck ton of Critical Role merch. Um, much of which I am a proud owner of. Like the Teldora cam- campaign setting stuff um, and and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's it's always interesting to me to see, like, items that I had forgotten about. Like, there was a Critical tarot deck, which, of course, now I would love to own, but they don't sell it anymore, and I'm not spending $225 on eBay to get that tarot deck, especially because it's not a complete tarot deck it's the it's like the arcane cards um what is it yeah it's the major arcana tarot deck so it's it's like the big heavy hitters but it's not all of them um it's a neat deck to be sure but if it was a complete tarot deck I would have gotten it but it's not so there you go it's always interesting to see um things that you've forgotten about especially the some of that older merch does go for quite a bit of money Oh, some of those items I do actually own. I have no intention of selling anything. Critical roll is one of the few things that I say I would actually collect. Um, within reason. Like, I'm not, I'm not such a... Basically, I only buy the stuff that I think is cool. Like, there's a ton of t-shirt designs that they've made over the years that I don't have. Because it's like, I would never wear it. That's just... That's just how that would go. Is this what I think it is? What the hell is... What is this? Critical Role unpainted miniatures, Wave One, Quick Picks, whiz Kids, all the figures. When did this happen? There's just there's just a bunch of generic. Holy crap! Seriously, when did this happen? Bugbear fighter, Shallow Priest, Swavain Basilisk, Aorian Nullifier, Gloomstalker, neat. Um, that's another thing I don't really have. I don't have like any of the critical role minis because I don't have any place to store them. That's the primary reason I'm sure once I move into a larger place, which I have to do later this year, I will, I will whip around and, uh, try to grab as much of that crap as I can. Um, actually to finish this podcast, um, I want to talk about the beetle and grim Taldore reborn, um, exalted edition. The, the, the Mac daddy one. Um, which I was very um, kindly gifted for Christmas from my uh, my parental units, uh, from, from mi madre, and I was very thankful for that. And I've gone through it pretty extensively at this point, um, so I wanted to talk about it a little bit. In fact, let me go get those pieces. Ever since I was a little kid, I have been a Rams fan. Um, my dad was a Rams fan when they were in LA the first time. And I, I grew up in a Rams household. I didn't live in St. Louis. Um, indeed, I, I spent time in Texas and Washington and Virginia and Connecticut. You know, by all rights, I probably should have been a Seahawks or a Patriots fan. But nope, I was a Rams fan. And if you know anything about the Los Angeles Rams or the St. Louis Rams or the NFL team that has been called the Rams in whichever city they've been in, you would know that the first time the Rams won the Super Bowl in franchise history was in 1999 with the greatest show on turf, Marshall Falk, Torrey Holt, Kurt Warner, you know, these, these Isaac Bruce, this incredible offense that changed the way football was played. And if you don't fucking believe me, go look it up because that's what they were they were the greatest show on turf and that turf show lasted for three seasons and they only won the Super Bowl in that first season in 99 they were NFC champions in 2001 but they didn't win the Super Bowl that year um because uh I can't remember who they played that year it may have been um the Patriots was that was that when fucking Brady made his debut I can't remember Um, But that may have been what happened. Anyway, for a long time, they were one of the worst teams in the NFL. Like, you would say the Rams in the same breath as, like, the Lions or the Browns. Like, we were just terrible. Couldn't make anything happen. If we had a positive winning record in a football season, that was amazing to me. I remember one of the biggest struggles of being a Rams fan was that you just couldn't watch the games They weren't popular games to televise. You know, it was always like the Packers and the Vikings, you know, shit like that. Like, things that people would watch on TV, but never the Rams. And then about five years ago, this young upstart kid named Sean McVay, who was 30 at the time, uh, became head coach of the Rams. He was the youngest head coach of the league. He still is, I believe. Um, And he started to make some moves and turn some stuff around. Indeed, they made it to the playoffs in their debut season. And then everybody kind of woke up and went, hey... The Rams. They got some stuff going on there. And then we booted Goff to the curve and sent his ass to Detroit and picked up Matthew Stafford in this final season. And finally, after 21 years of a drought, the Rams have become two-time franchise Super Bowl winners uh, in their entire history. Um, and we we won the the Super Bowl or the the big game, whatever you want to call it. I don't think the NFL is really going to come after me for calling it the fucking Super Bowl. Although I do love calling it the superb owl. That is excellent. As far as a game goes, it was not a good one. Like you know a good football game when you see it. This ain't it. This was this was a a fairly boring game, if I'm perfectly honest. Couple of neat plays. I love the fact that Donald stuffed um, whoever the Bengals quarterback was. I can't remember. Is fucking Bradford? No. Who the fuck... Who the fuck was the... Anyway, he got stuffed. Um, it was like the final play, and I thought that was so fucking poetic. Um, but, yeah, it was... It was pretty awesome. Um, and... I've never been ashamed to be a Rams fan. You know that's that's the thing about being a fan of a sports team. Like being a fan of a show, it's it's a lot easier to point at like a season of the show um, and be like, yeah, that season wasn't very good. But when you're a you're a sports team fan, you gotta stick with them. You know through thick and thin, no matter what happens, you gotta just keep with your boys and be like, these are these are my guys. This is my team. And I'm here for the long run. And I know like, you know, a lot of fucking people will like, quote unquote, hop on the background and be like, I've been a Rams fan forever. And I'm not here to be like, I've been a Rams fan since forever. Fuck you. Um, I don't really care. $100 for a Jersey Eat a dick. So I'm looking at the merch. I mostly want a mug. If I get a mug that's in like the shape of a Rams hat, I'd be all over that. Let's take a look. Maybe there's something in home and office. Holiday decorations, school supplies, wall art, office accessories, helmets, furniture, electronics. Is there not like a home and hats, sweatshirt, T-shirts, men, women, jerseys, collectibles, maybe plaques, footballs, helmets, posters, coins, autographed items, trading cards, display cases. No, nothing. All right, let me drink. Where anyway? It was. It was an awesome. It wasn't an awesome game. Um, it was a game that I'm glad we won. And I am so happy that I get to go in, like, on, on, like, Monday, you know, and just smile, just the biggest fucking smile, and be like, you all fucking doubted us. Ooh, I do kind of want a mug that says Super Bowl Champions. That, that would be kind of cool. They all kind of suck design-wise, though. The glasses are okay, but I want, like, a fucking mug, and that mug kind of sucks. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh oh, that one's not bad. That one is better the shot glass isn't bad how much is that mug it's 18 that's not bad either actually Prize wars yeah i want one that says nfc champion idiot stupid fucking Ooh, i get a mug that says hubert i think it's personalizable but you know whatever um yeah no there's some there's some not not bad things on there anyway yeah the rams won and it it does make me happy That they finally won. That fucking game was so fucking stressful. Good halftime show, too, actually. Um, I appreciated that. (sighs) 20 years. Last time the Rams won the Super Bowl, I was six. Five, maybe. 1999, I was five. I was five years old. 22 years later, they win the Super Bowl again. And I actually will remember this one. Um, I don't remember the 1999 game but that's not surprising I don't remember basically anything that occurred before the year 2012 um, I'd have to look at photo albums and then even then I wouldn't believe you that it happened so pretty awesome let's move on to the next thing in the podcast go Rams go Rams forever okay so the exalted edition of the Beetle and Grim Tal'Dorei Reborn um, by the way if you are interested in purchasing this, it has been back-ordered until March. So, get your orders in soon, and hopefully they will arrive. Anyway, the the $400 version of this comes with two bonuses, which I'm going to talk about first before I get into the core box that you get. Um, the first uh, bonus is the Beetle and Grimm Map Vault, which you can purchase separately, in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm not going to take them all out of the roll, because what's the point? Uh, but there are... I want to say, I think there's five, five or six double-sided maps of fairly generic locations throughout uh, Tal'dorei. Um, However, they also do like they can be used for basically anything. But they also do um, correspond to some of the suggested adventures that come in this box. Um, Like there are like little campaign arcs that you can run with your players uh, that come in this box, and so those maps would correspond to those adventures. Um, but they are also generic enough like one of them is just straight up called Tavern um, that you can use in basically any D&D game, so that's pretty great. The other thing that you get is the uh, the jewelry kit, which is the other bonus that you can buy on its own. Uh, between the two, I'd probably, like, if you only could get one, I'd recommend the maps, because those are have a lot more versatility than the jewelry kit. Um, Or the jewelry set, rather. I wish there was a kit. That'd be amazing. Um, But the kit, fuck, set, is four items. Um, There are three pins and a necklace. The first pin is the Alabaster Lyceum pin, which is basically just a magic school. It's an incredibly well-made pin, I gotta admit. Um, It's, you know, metal. It's got this huge fucking safety pin clasp on the back of it. It's gorgeously made. The detail on it is is phenomenal so they do not skimp on the quality of these items that is goddamn certain whitestone rifle core badge has the uh the sun tree um the guns of percy the whitestone flag colors um and it's also just a, a huge fucking metal pin um if i had a pin board these things would go on them but i don't the Claret Order pin, which is a like a kind of a little dagger and a, like a blood drop, which looks very cool. I don't know who the Claret Order are. I don't remember them from the show. And then the Ashari necklace, um, which is, of course, Keyleth's order of like nature-based druids. Um, the pendant itself is very cool. It's made of a metallic framework with what I would guess would be like acrylic uh colorings on the inside it's got a simple leather cord um which is pretty bog standard um uh, most necklaces would come with that by default and then you would be left on your own to go out and buy um shoot uh, you'd be left on your own to go out and buy like a, a nicer chain um but those are cool you know they'd be designed to be handed out to a player or something like that speaking of handouts to the player let's talk about what's in the actual core Tal'Doy Reborn box. This, like, if you got the base box, here is all of the things that you would get in this box. Let's talk about some of these more physical handouts. It comes with... Do not fall off my my bed. Eh, stay. Okay. It comes with... Um, actually, you know what I need? Do you know what I need? Everybody knows what I need? I know what I need. I need this handy-dandy little booklet where are you you little bastard there is in this uh where is it it's not there is it buried under here hang on there it is that's what i need sorry it comes with more pins but i don't exactly know what they are but fortunately it comes with this little book that tells you everything that's in here uh where are you here we go all right so it comes with gold pieces comes with three Tal'Dorei gold pieces, where on one side you see Zan Tal'Dorei, the founder of Tal'Dorei, or the Liberator, I guess. And then the other side, it's the Lawbringer symbol. So you can, you know, hand out some actual gold pieces to your players, which is pretty neat. You have a clasp token, which is this gigantic silver metal coin um, that has the clasp logo on one side and it's blank on the other um, that you can give to your your would-be thieves and assassins. Uh, then you have the Golden Grin Pin, which is this, uh, association of, like, stealthy bards, basically. And then, of course, there is the Council of Tal'Dorei badge, which everybody wants to be a member of the Council of Taldore, which is awesome. It also comes with item cards. Um, it has some item cards for the Vestiges of Divergence. Uh, and in case you don't know what those are, they're basically, like, dope-ass, um end-all be-all god items but what's neat about the vestiges is that the longer you have them and the more you use them the more powerful they get over time they go from dormant to awakened to exalted and so there's three different item cards for each level uh of each vestige of divergence so they are very cool but these are like each party should probably only have like two to three of these items they are incredibly strong and overpowered and will break your game and then there are other magic item cards of items that have been made famous throughout critical um, uh, characters, like the Boots of Haste or the Cataclysm Bo- Bolts or the, let's see, what else is there? The Echo Stone, uh, Magician's Judge. You notice that some of them are, I mean, Magician's Judge does make its debut in season one, but it also appears in uh, season two. The Rod of Mercurial Form, Tinkertop Bolt Blaster 1000. Um, which I'm pretty sure is just from season two. And then there are some items of the Ashari that like each, uh, branch of the Ashari has their own unique tool, like the sky sail with the air Ashari and so on and so forth. So you get item cards like that. It comes with a DM screen, brand new, super nifty DM screen. I'm not a big fan of the art to be perfectly honest with you. So I plastered my DM screen with critical roll stickers that I have, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And I plan on doing that way more. The inside of the DM screen has more gorgeous art and information that is specific to Critical Role. Like the calendar, uh, the uh, names of all the prime deities, the factions and societies of Critical Role, um, skills and the associated abilities. So, like, if it's an intelligence check, you'd be like, roll an investigation, intelligence. How cover works, how obscured area works, travel pace. Difficulty um typical difficulty classes, you know, DC five, fifteen, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh the conditions, meals and drinks at inns, um services like uh hireling, a messenger, a ship's passage, um trap damage, severity by level, more conditions. It's it's very well done. Um and I appreciate it. Um I am actually one of those people that I have at my disposal like now I'm gonna be actively using three DM screens. Because A, my table's enormous. And B, I need that variety of information in order to really do my job. The book itself, the Tal'Dorei um, book, is broken out into individual like little booklets. Um, I think there's seven parts. Yeah, there's seven parts, um, which is kind of great. Like if, you, if your player just needed to look at part of the book, you could hand them that relevant part of the book without giving them like the farm so to speak um like if you want to know like there is an there's an actual part of this uh called like the library of the cobalt soul presents the official guide to the realm of taldore which is all of the information about cities and histories and like fun facts about various locations on taldore without any of the plot specific threads or leads so this is specifically designed to be read by players or scanned and printed out as handouts for players. Um, but yeah, I love that it's broken out into little books like that. Uh, like, here's one that's just character options. Here's one that's just the exact same thing as the the player handout in terms of, like, the locations and information about the world. Except this one comes with things like uh, plot threads and so on and so forth. The default beginning book that tells you all about the history of Tal'Dorei and the allegiances and alliances that can be made within. Um, the Game Master Toolkit, all the stuff that the DM needs... Allies and adversaries of Tal'Dorei. So the quote-unquote monster manual uh, is in the back there, which is super fucking cool. Speaking of monsters, one thing I was not expecting to get with this box, which I think is really fucking cool, are 55 encounter cards, which are these... I don't know how big these are. Six by eight, we'll say. um, Cards that have full art of the enemy that people are fighting. And on the back of it is all the stats about that item, or about that enemy they're fighting. And it's this little fold that would hang on your DM screen so the characters can see what they're going up against and you, the DM, can just see the stats of that creature without having to constantly flip through a monster manual. And so there's 55 of them, including all of the le- members of Vox Machina, uh, including Tarion, and including Dodie. And Trinket has one. So, yeah, it, those, are, those are really, really cool. Um, speaking of things that are really, really cool, comes with a cloth map of Tal'Dorei which you know designed to hand to your players it's a pretty well made cloth map um I actually have like at this point one two three different maps of Tal'Dorei including a blanket so I do not lack for maps um more battle maps on the inside um which are made of this really nice paper like they're folded but they unfold and lay flat really nicely I have to sneeze (coughs) excuse me some more battle maps, and then a thousand and one fucking paper handouts for your players. Pretty much all of which spawn a, a plot thread. Like here's a wanted poster. Here's a here's a shipping manifest um, about you know just it's, it's you know ship the Lucidian Hag destination still been dock thirteen. Here's all the stuff that was on it. Um, and there's like deeper information on every piece of paper that the players can discover to get more information about this plot thread. Here's a, here's a seeking brave botanist. Please go find this mushroom for me. Here's a, a council business for official use onus. It's a letter from the Council of Tal'Dorei. It's a summons. So that's very cool. Uh, here's a note that the players can find crumpled up on the ground. Here's a, here's a uh, for sale thing. Uh, messengers and and messages from various things an invitation to join x and y society um here's a, a note from the class that says this note doesn't exist please destroy upon receipt and stuff like that And they're all incredibly well made with really cool art a couple of them have like duplicates um so you could like theoretically use them more than once um basically if i were to ever hand these out to my players i would just ask for them back um there are Talray Reborn character booklets that are very, very nice. Um they are in, like kind of in color, and then there's one that's black and white, so you can theoretically make scans of that one to get duplicates. Um no, they are they are phenomenal. Here's a menu of of like a restaurant, which I believe is also a plot thread. Office of the High Curator, the Cobalt Reserve and Westron, if you have any Cobalt soul members in your party. Um, here's uh, a prayer for the the matron of ravens or the raven queen, depending on your definition. It's, it's truly incredible. It's so much, so much crap. Um, so now the question is, is it worth it for all of these things? It is a rather extravagant purchase. And were I buying this for myself, um, yeah, I would have, I would have spent this money easily. Um, I think the stuff is of incredibly high quality. I think because I'm now running two games in Xandria, I will be using this stuff pretty much all the time. And I think it's very, very cool. And finally, the actual bonus encounters, the little stories, um that they offer, I think are interesting as well, to the point where I'm probably gonna use one or two or all of them. Because I think they're they're pretty they're pretty fun. Um Designed for four characters of fourth or fifth level. What's neat is that these stories, were you to use them, carry your players from I think fourth to tenth level. It's like fourth to fifth level, and then the next one's fifth level, um, and then the one after that is seventh level, and then the one after that is ninth level. So what what's great about this is that you can you can slip them in there, and have your players go do these adventures. And then in order to continue leveling up, they can bugger off and do your homebrew shit and have that balance. You know, just have them in there as, like, available plot threads. So, no, I thought this book was was incredibly well-made, um, and I would highly recommend getting it, especially... I would only get this if you plan on running an exagerate game. This is, like, this is DMs only, basically. Um, I, I don't think, like, a, a casual fan would really... Use this stuff. This is stuff for a purpose, right? This is so you can run the game. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. But if you want to, go for it. I just hope that it inspires you uh, to run an Exandria game because it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun if you do. And that will be the end of this episode. Sorry, it went on for for quite a bit longer. Um, clearly, I had some stuff to talk. I'm going to go put all this Critical Role crap away and um, probably watch some Critical Role. Now I'm thinking about it. Now I'm thinking about it. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one, everyone.